Pushkin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. In Nashville, Tennessee, there's a songwriter named Bobby Braddock. He's in his 70s, maybe five foot seven, bald head, scruffy beard, wiry like if you messed with him in a bar, you'd probably lose. The most striking thing about him is his eyes, which are the palest and most intense shade of blue. He wears sunglasses a lot, and it's almost as if he needs to protect the world from that look. I met him on Music Row in Nashville. We had lunch, and then we sat in one of the writer's rooms in the Sony building, piano in the corner, couches to one side, and he talked about his education in the music business. I think I always had the reputation as being kind of a quirky writer, maybe a little left field. The turning point in Braddock's career was a song you've probably heard of. It was performed by Tammy Wynette back when she was the reigning queen of country music, 1968 about a mom who had to spell out the word D-I-V-O-R-C-E so her kids wouldn't know their parents were splitting up. So, D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Yeah. Wrote this, did a demo on it, and no takers. Nobody did it. Nobody recorded D-I-V-O-R-C-E was a song with a gimmick. Braddock did a lot of gimmicky songs back then. No one wanted this one. So Braddock went to a friend and longtime collaborator, Curly Putman, so I said, well, why is nobody recording? He said, I think around the important part of your song, such a sad song, and your melodies on that part is too happy. And what I was doing was... Oh, I wish that we could stop this day. 
commercial. And I said, well, what would you do? And he got his guitar, and he had this really mournful singing style. Tammy Wynette was a big fan of Curly's singing. She loved his singing because he had, I mean, he just, his singing was just so sad. He got his guitar and he said, oh, I wish that we could stop this D-I-V-O-R-C. So I said, Get your guitar. Let's, let's put it on tape like that. You know? D-I-V-O-R-C-E went to number one. It was Bobby Braddock's first great exercise in how to make people cry. And from then on, things just got sadder. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. This episode is about something that has never made sense to me. Maybe it's because I'm a Canadian, or maybe Americans puzzle about this too. I'm talking about the bright line that divides American society. Not the color line or the ideological line. I'm talking about the sad song line. I don't know why people don't talk about this more, because it's weird. For the sake of argument, let's use the rock magazine Rolling Stone's list of the best songs of all time, the top 50. These are the critics' choices. Hotel California by the Eagles comes in at 49, which, as far as I can tell, is a song about drugs. Tutti Frutti by Little Richard at 43. Tutti Frutti, which I remind you has as its signature lyric, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, Tutti Fruity, oh Rudy, wop bop a loop bop a lop bam boom. There's Dancing in the Street at 40, Light My Fire, Be My Baby, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. There are songs about wanting to have sex, songs about having sex, songs about getting high, presumably after having sex. Number one song on the list, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. Ah, you've gone to the finest schools, all right, Miss Lonely, but you know you only used to get juiced in it. Nobody's ever taught you how to live out on the street, and now you're going to have to get used to it. I think that's a song about someone who dropped out of Harvard. The number one rock song of all time is about dropping out of Harvard. In all of those 50 songs, nobody dies after a long illness. No marriage disintegrates. Nobody's killed on a battlefield. No mother grieves for a son. The closest that any song in Rolling Stone's list comes to being truly sad is Smokey Robinson's Tracks of My Tears, which is, first of all, number 50. So they put the sad song at the bottom of the list. And secondly, it's about a guy at a party. In their moments of greatest travail, the protagonists of rock and roll's sad songs still get to go to parties. Now just turn on a country music station, especially a traditional country music station, and listen. It's like a different universe. Marriages going to hell, people staring into their shot glass in a honky-tonk, people dying young. Have you ever heard John Prine's Unwed Fathers? It's a devastating bit of songwriting about a teenage mom fleeing town. He sings it with his wife, Rachel. On somewhere else bound Smoky Mountain Green 
she bows her head down Humming lullabies Your daddy never Meant to hurt you ever You just don't live here But you got his eyes Those last two lines Your daddy never meant to hurt you ever He just don't live here but you've got his eyes That's brutal like some bad dream One half of the country, the rock music part, wants their music to be hymns to extroversion. The other half wants to talk about real-life dramas and have a good cry. I don't get it. By the way, you know who wrote that Unwed Father's song with John Prine? Bobby Braddock. Or maybe you've heard this, another classic recorded by Tammy Wynette. Golden with one tiny stone, cast aside, like the love that's Golden Ring. It follows a couple from first love to the breakup of their marriage by tracing the journey of their wedding ring from pawn shop to pawn shop. It's a weeper. Who wrote it? Bobby Braddock. And today, 40 years after he wrote it, Braddock is still mad about a one-word change made by the song's producer, Billy Sherrill, because that made his song one crucial degree less sad. What we had was, uh, he says you won't admit it, but I know you're running around. And Billy changed it to, he says you won't admit it, but I know you're leaving town. That's not as, that's not as powerful as uh, you're running no, around. He says you won't admit it, but I know you're leaving town. She says one thing's for certain, I don't love you anymore. And throws down the ring as she walks out the door. I think country music is supposed to be about real life, you know, and I try to reflect that in my right. Golden ring. Which brings us to maybe the greatest country song of all time. Certainly, the saddest country song of all time. The song that made me get on a plane and go to Nashville. It was recorded by the great George Jones, one of the half dozen or so most iconic figures in the history of country music. You just heard him singing in Golden Ring. Jones was famously the husband of Tammy Wynette for a time, a hard-living, dissolute megastar. Once, in the midst of an epic bender, Joan's family took his keys away, so he got on his riding mower and drove eight miles to the liquor store to get some whiskey. This was a man who could pour his fractured heart into his music like no one else. A half dozen times in his career, Jones found a song truly worthy of his talents. But it never got better than He Stopped Loving Her Today. I still remember when I first heard that song. And from the day I started thinking about this episode, I haven't been able to get it out of my head. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by, she still prayed upon his mind. Kept her picture 
on his wall. Do I need to tell you who wrote that song? Bobby Braddock. Bobby Braddock is the king of tears. But he still loved her through it all. Hoping she'd come back again. Oh, man. One of the things that got me interested in sad songs was a story my sister-in-law Bev told me. She and my brother live in the same area I grew up in, Waterloo County in southern Ontario. And a while ago, she went to a performance by a local chamber choir, 30 singers. They sang a cantata called Annalise by the British composer James Whitbourne, a choral composition which puts the words of Anne Frank's diary to music. I know this seems like a little bit of a digression from country music, but it's a really useful case study in understanding why some songs make us cry. The performance Bev told me about was on a Sunday afternoon, a free performance at the public library, which is a very utilitarian, very 1960s building on Queen Street in downtown Kitchener. I've been there many times. Wall-to-wall carpet, that old books library smell, which I have to admit I love. How many people are there? It's in their main reading room. Uh, They've moved around all the tables and... A hundred? hundred twenty, it's full. Pretty much standing room only. As they're singing, I think, why is that alto not singing? And then I look over and I think, somebody else, a soprano not singing. That's odd because everybody else in their parts is singing. And I realized they were crying. And they couldn't sing. Bev says she cried pretty much through the entire performance. She was looking straight ahead because she didn't want people to see she was crying, but it didn't matter because everyone was crying. When the performance was over, Bev approached the stage to talk to the soloist, the woman singing Anne Frank's words. I just went up to her afterwards and and congratulated her on the beauty of the piece and and her singing. And I said, and how did you manage to sing without crying? And she said, well, I couldn't look at Mark, the conductor, because he was wiping tears from his eyes. And I had my back to the choir, so that was good. And I didn't look at anybody in the audience because they were crying. So I just looked up in the middle distance and I sang. It was a good thing I had it memorized. I was at home in Canada when Bev told me that story. So I called up Mark, the conductor, and the soloist, whose name is Natasha. They're actually husband and wife. They only live a few minutes away from my brother, so they came over. Mark sat at the piano in the living room, and Natasha stood behind him, and they performed one of the pieces from Annalise that they did that day in the library. This is the, the last movement, and called, it's called uh, Anne's Meditation. I see the world, I see the world being slowly turned, turned into a wilderness. I realize this is a crazy question, because we're hearing a piece based on the diary of Anne Frank, 
which is one of the most heartbreaking stories from one of the most horrific moments in recent history. But why was everyone crying that day at the Kitchener Library? The obvious reason is that the music is beautiful. So is Natasha's singing. The performance is also authentic. There's nothing contrived about it. It wasn't at Carnegie Hall. People weren't wearing suits and evening gowns. They were at the Kitchener Library. And there's families getting books and kids running around and everyone's on stacking chairs with the tables pushed off to the side. But here's the most important thing. Annalise is specific. It's a cantata about the actual experiences of a real person, in her own words. Bev says that when she cried, she started thinking about her own family, Mennonites who escaped terrible persecution in Russia. Natasha says that as she sang about 12-year-old Anne Frank, she was thinking about her own daughter, who was 10, and who was sitting right next to Bev in the audience. Beauty and authenticity can create a mood. They set the stage. But I think the thing that pushes us over the top into tears is details. We cry when melancholy collides with specificity. And specificity is not something every genre does well. Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones, written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. It's a song about a conversation a man is having with a silent, suffering loved one. The story goes that Mick Jagger dreamt up the verses while sitting at the bedside of his then-girlfriend, Marianne Faithful as she recovered from an overdose. I watched you suffer I watched you suffer a dull aching pain. Now you've decided to show me the same. No sweeping exit or offstage lines could make me feel bitter or treat you unkind. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild, wild horses couldn't drag me away. Wild Horses was recorded first by the legendary Graham Parsons. Not long afterwards, Parsons died of an overdose, and his friend and protege, the country music singer Emmylou Harris, made a song in his memory. She wrote it with Bill Danoff. It's called From Boulder to Birmingham. I don't want to hear love song I got on this airplane just to fly And I know there's life below me But all that you can show me Someone who has suffered a terrible loss has gotten on a plane, and she's so numbed by grief that she can no longer see those around her. The last time I felt like this, I was in the wilderness, and the canyon was on fire. From Boulder to Birmingham and Wild Horses are both beautiful, melancholy. They're about the same thing. 
the ties the living and the healthy have to those in pain. But which is the sadder song? I don't think there's any question. Wild Horses is generic. Listen to how it starts. Childhood living is easy to do. The things you wanted, I bought them for you. Graceless lady, you know who I am. You know I can't let you slide through my hands. What's going on? Any idea? What is Mick yammering on about? Now compare that to the specificity of looking down from the airplane and seeing nothing but prairie, then standing on a mountain and watching a canyon burn. I watched it burn. I would rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. I would hold my life in his First, she references the great black spiritual, Rock My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham. The Bosom of Abraham is where the righteous dead go while awaiting judgment. Then she sings, And I would also walk all the way from Boulder to Birmingham. Now she's locating her grief. I would make a pilgrimage from progressive, hippie, liberal, remember this is 1973, dope-smoking Colorado, back to the repressive heart of the Old South, just to see your face. Two completely different, specific images, each with its own set of emotional triggers, and she's piled one on top of another. Mark Voronin, the music director of the choir in my hometown, says that there's a part in Annalise that does the same thing. Anne is, they're in hiding already, and and she starts singing, and the composer has set these words in kind of a style of of an American Sousa march. And so she's talking about being in the bathtub and being scrubbed in the bathtub. And it's a Sousa. Uh, we'll scrub, scrub, scrub ourselves in the tin tub. Right? Very happy and optimistic music. Anne Frank in the bathtub to the tune of a Sousa march with the horrors of the Holocaust outside her door. Three absolutely concrete images in merciless combination. It just floored me every every time I heard it, B- because it was so close to you know our own mm-hmm. daughter. Was, mm-hmm. You know, to think that that she would have to create this kind of fiction in order to just get through the day. That's how you get tears. You make the story so real and the details so sharp, and you add in so many emotional triggers that the listener cannot escape. But it's a risky thing to do, right? If you aren't a talented composer and you don't do a sensitive rendition of those lyrics, they could fall flat, could seem forced, even offensive. Far easier just to fall back on the bland cliché that wild horses couldn't drag you away. Country music makes people cry because it's not afraid to be specific. You know, she came to see him one last time. Oh, and we all wondered if she would. And it kept running through my mind. This time, he's over her for good. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% 
on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot. Your kerosene lamps and your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva luxury mattress. Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online, they cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at sattva.com slash gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash gladwell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English stiff upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. Keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gladwell. Bobby Braddock was born in Auburndale, Florida, a little town between Tampa and Orlando. His father grew citrus. They were Church of Christ, just about the most fundamentalist of fundamentalist Christians. Braddock moved to Nashville in 1964, just after getting married, to seek his fortune in the music business. He wrote his memoirs a few years ago. It's called A Life on Nashville's Music Row. I read it before I went to see him. And the best way to describe the book is that it's exhausting. I don't mean that in a bad way, because I couldn't put it down. But so much happens. You've lived this incredibly tumultuous, emotionally tumultuous life. I have, yeah. And in the book, it sounds like the first precipitating event is the death of your son. Braddock was touring with the country music legend Marty Robbins at the time. He and his wife Sue had a baby. 
The child was just a few months old when he died. Whenever I was in town, not on the road with Marty Robbins, every single day we'd buy fresh flowers, go put it on his grave. We were just pathetic. He and Sue fight. She cheats on him. He cheats on her. They break up. They get back together. They have a daughter. They divorce. His ex-wife mysteriously vanishes. He drinks a lot, gets into fights, owes enormous sums to the IRS, has a major bout with depression, smokes a lot of pot, lurches from one volcanic event to the next, and through it all, Braddock writes songs, hundreds of them. Your kind of tolerance for emotional volatility seems extraordinary. I guess. <laughs> Tolerance is, is probably a pretty good word for it. Braddock walks over to the keyboard on the other side of the room. He begins to talk about an old girlfriend named Angela who committed suicide by driving her car into the river. When Angela died, her mother took her baby to raise it. And she sent me a picture of the little girl, Angela's child, when she was about four or five years old, looked just like her mom. Picture her standing out in the yard. And boy, it did a number on me. Despite all the distance and time. He wrote a song about that in 20 minutes. He played it for me. Then he played his favorite bit of a sad Randy Newman song. He played me a heartbreaking song he wrote once after getting up in the middle of the night and passing his lover in the hallway. And as he played one weeper after another, I realized that that thing I'd said about Braddock's tolerance for emotional volatility, tolerance was the wrong word. That was just me projecting my uptight Canadian self onto Braddock. But Braddock is from the musical side of the United States where emotion is not something to be endured, it's something to be embraced. At one point, when cell phones were still analog, you could buy a scanner and listen in to other people's conversations. And that's what Braddock does. He can't help himself. A woman complains to her husband for an hour about his lack of affection from the parking lot of the grocery store, then asks him what he wants, and he says, maybe Apple Newtons? And then, this is my favorite part, I'm quoting now from Braddock's memoir, the conversation that truly touched me was between a man, perhaps 40, and his mother, maybe late 60s, in which the son opened up about sexual problems he was having with his wife. And I envied the sprinkling of profanities and the mother's invitation to come over to the house, son, and let's open a bottle of whiskey and talk about it, wishing I had that kind of easy and open communication with my mom, then learning that the guy's mother was terminally ill with cancer. If you're keeping track... That's marital difficulty, sex, profanity, whiskey, mom, and terminal cancer in one conversation. And it truly touched him. Do you know what Braddock's favorite song is? Vince Gill's Go Rest High on That Mountain, which Gill wrote in memory both of his brother, who died young of a heart attack, and fellow country star Keith Whitley, who drank himself to death. Oh my God, when Vince Gill 
and Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless are singing harmony on that thing. I go nuts. It still tears me up. Knowing that it's about death, and Vince wrote it about Keith Whitley, and then about his own brother, and just the emotion that's in that song. It's just, it's just powerful. Gathered round your great degree Wish I could see angels' faces It's heartbreaking. Listening to that song makes me wonder if some portion of what we call ideological division in America actually isn't ideological at all. How big are the political differences between red and blue states anyway? In the grand scheme of things, not that big. Maybe what we're seeing instead is a difference of emotional opinion. Because if your principal form of cultural expression has drinking, sex, suicide, heart attacks, mom, and terminal cancer all on the table for public discussion, then the other half of the country is going to seem really chilly and uncaring. And if you're from the rock and roll half, clinging semi-ironically to tutti-frutti oh Rudy, when you listen to a song written about a guy's brother who died young of a heart attack and another guy who drank himself to death, you're going to think, who are these people? Here's another way to think about the sad song line. Let me read you the list of the birthplaces of the performers of the top 20 country songs of all time. Again, I'm going to use the Rolling Stone magazine list. Ready? Arkansas, Virginia, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Mississippi, Georgia, California, Central Valley, by the way, not Los Angeles, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, Texas, Kentucky, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, Texas, Texas, Kentucky, Texas. I could do the top 50, or the top 100, or the top 200, and you get the same pattern. Basically, you cannot be a successful country singer or songwriter if you're not from the South. It's impossible. There's one exception, which is the great songwriter Harlan Howard, who was born in Detroit, but almost immediately thereafter, his family moves to a farm in rural Kentucky. It's like the five-second rule when you drop a piece of food on the floor. If it's not on the ground long enough, it doesn't count. As far as I can tell, There are no Jews on the country list, almost no Catholics, only two black people. It's white Southern Protestants all the way down. Now, compare that to the rock and roll list. You've got Jews from Minnesota, black people from Detroit, Catholics from New Jersey, middle-class British art school dropouts, Canadians, Jamaicans. Rock and roll is the Rainbow Coalition. That diversity is a good thing. It's why there's so much innovation in rock and roll, but you pay a price for that. There was a very clever bit of research published recently by Colin Morris in the magazine The Pudding. He analyzed 15,000 popular songs using an algorithm that compresses digital files. So if you take out the repetitive bits in a song, how much of it is left? Morris's big finding is that rock and roll, as a genre, is really, really repetitive. Britney Spears, Lady Gaga, The Beatles, if you take out the duplicative parts, their music shrinks by 60%. That's what happens when everyone is from somewhere different. Nobody speaks the same language, so you have to use cliché. The same phrases over and over again. 
Because if you go deeper or try to get more specific, you start to lose people. Country music, on the other hand, is not nearly as repetitive. When Morris ran the lyrics of popular country singers through his algorithm, they only shrank by about 40%, a third less than the rock and rollers. Nor is hip-hop repetitive, which makes sense. The birthplaces of everyone on Rolling Stone's list of greatest rap songs reads like an urban version of the country list. Queens, South Central LA, Brooklyn, Long Island, South Central, Long Beach, Houston, Queens, the Bronx, Englewood, New Jersey, the Bronx. Hip-hop and country are both tightly knit musical communities. And when you're speaking to people who understand your world and your culture and your language, you can tell much more complicated stories. You can use much more precise imagery. You can lay yourself bare because you're among your own. In the book, it sounds like your relationship with Sparky was the one that seemed the most creatively fruitful. It was. It was. Sparky was a beautiful blonde from northern Alabama, the great love of Bobby Braddock's life. Why was that? I, I think because uh, uh, my, my feelings about her were so strong. I mean, it was, uh, it was sort of a visceral thing. I think that's why I found Bobby Braddock's book so exhausting. It's because everything is felt. Everything is a mountain peak. And Sparky? Sparky was Everest. High-altitude infatuation. That's the sort of thing that made people go absolutely crazy, you know. <laughs> and that was the case with her, you know. That's what gets the animal instinct of people maybe who haven't evolved as much as they should and cause them to go out and get a gun and blow somebody's brains out over some gun not being able can't stand the thought of some someone, you know, having sex with the person that he loves. Braddock and Sparky were on and off lovers for years. It was intense, painful, euphoric. When it ended, Braddock was in pieces. He kept her picture on the wall. Went half crazy now and then. That's Braddock in the original demo he made of He Stopped Loving Her Today. He still loved her through it all. Hoping she'd come back again. I said, I'm not sure where it came from. It may have come from Sparky, you know. I honestly don't know. It'd be interesting. How could it not? Yeah, well, it, it, I, think it prob- I think it probably did, but I just I can't say, I can't say that for any certainty. Tomorrow they'll carry him away. I felt like Braddock shrink at that moment, listening to his tangled dreams, and then wanting to shake him at the end of the session. It's Sparky, Sparky. They found some letters by his bed. I mean, you wrote a song in the middle of the great defining love affair of your life. It, the relationship ends and you write, write a song about the heartbreak of that a man carries to his grave. I mean, it's... Yeah, that's true. Could it, be, could it be more clear? I went to see him one last time. Bobby Braddock wrote He Stopped Loving Her Today with his friend Curly in 1977. They took it to the singer George Jones. Jones was then at his lowest ebb, a wreck, strung out on cocaine and whiskey. He'd just checked out of a psychiatric hospital. 
the great love of his life, Tammy Wynette, had embodied her hit song D-I-V-O-R-C-E and left him. Jones had just nearly shot and killed one of his best friends. The heartbroken Bobby Braddock has written a song about a man who cannot stop loving a woman, and it's sung by the heartbroken George Jones who cannot stop loving a woman. Kept some letters by his bed It in 1962 He had underlined in red why did he finally turn his back on his great love? Why is this the first time he's smiled in years? Because he's dead. Only death could end his love. It's totally over the top. Maudlin, sentimental, kitschy, call it whatever you want. Just don't fight it. One thing that Bobby Braddock told me in passing that I think about a lot is that he thought of the character in his song as a bad role model. The man was obsessed. He couldn't let go. But that's the point, right? That's why we cry. Because the song manages to find beauty and even a little bit of grandeur in someone's frailty. And soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. Wild horses, please. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to the Grand Ole Opry House, to the celebration of life of George Glenn Jones, one of the most important people ever, of all time and of any time, in the history of country music. Today, George Jones died in 2013. Everyone who was anyone in country music came to his memorial service. You should watch it if you get the chance. It's on YouTube, all two hours and 41 minutes of it, because it's everything I've been talking about. Vince Gill stands up with Patty Loveless and sings Go Rest High in That Mountain and breaks down halfway through. Go rest high on that mountain you Travis Tritt remembers a conversation he once had with Chris Christopherson about how they expected George Jones to have died years before. And I looked at Chris and I made the comment, you know, with all the years of hard living that George had, who would have ever thought that he would outlive Tammy? And Chris looked at me and said, had it not been for Nancy, 
he would not have. Nancy Jones, George Jones's fourth and final wife, the real love of his life, his soulmate and companion. Travis Tritt holds out his hand towards Nancy, who's sitting right in the front row. George said it many times. She's my angel, and she saved my life. And so we owe you a debt of gratitude for that. Then comes the crowning moment of the day, the final performance. Alan Jackson strides out onto the stage, a big rangy guy, craggy features, cowboy boots, jeans, long coat, white Stetson. He looks squarely at Nancy Jones and without introduction launches into He Stopped Loving Her Today. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget time. As the years went slow by. And you realize, as he sings, that Braddock's song has gotten even more specific. It's no longer about a long-ago love affair. It's about right now. This is the day George Jones stopped loving Nancy Jones. Alan Jackson takes off his hat and places it over his heart. He stopped loving her today. And if you aren't crying, I can't help you. We love you, George. One of the true greats of our time, ladies and gentlemen, at all time. That's Alan Jackson. Thank you so much, Alan. Revisionist History is produced by Mia Lobel and Jacob Smith with Camille Baptista, Stephanie Daniel, and Xiomara Martinez-White. Our editor is Julia Barton. Flan Williams is our engineer. Original music by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to Andy Bowers and Jacob Weisberg of Panoply. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. Every week at Revisionist History, we revisit the past in hopes of better understanding the future. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a living archive of financial history. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years. Across those decades, he invented three new indices for the NASDAQ and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including recent mania in AI stocks. Mark says the majority of Americans are misunderstanding what the AI frenzy means for their money moving forward, with potentially dramatic and dangerous consequences. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will be impacted in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation 
for free at StockTrend2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is StockTrend2024.com. That's StockTrend2024.com. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all-new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan. It's a bold choice for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through their day. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.